0: Fathers, we get ready to dive into Your Word. Lord, we do this not um, not just as curious onlookers or even as serious scholars so much as we do eager and hungry followers, disciples. Lord, we want to be fed with Your Word and we want to meet You in it. Lord, I pray that even now You would humble us as we approach it. So that you would make us teachable, malleable in your hands, Lord, soft enough to respond, Lord, focused enough to not be distracted, Lord, obedient enough to do what it says. And so, Lord, I pray that as we take your word today and lay it as it were a template on our own hearts and attitudes, and behaviors, and, and lay it on our church as a measuring rod. Father, I pray that's where we see the inconsistencies, or shortcomings, or any places where we have deviated from this biblical norm, Father, that eagerly, humbly, we would seek you to restore and to remedy, to forgive what is sin or to strengthen what has become weak. Lord, so that we can be who you want us to be. We want to glorify you. We want to make much of you. We want to satisfy you. We want you to be glorified and pleased in all that we do. Lord, we also want to be useful in your hands. The times are are critical. The need is great. And the hours late, so, Father, use us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to set a picture for you just for a moment in this context setting, just so that you and I are operating from sort of the same scenery in our minds. The early church in, in the book of Acts is absolutely exploding. I mean, this is just a church just burgeoning with growth. And I want you to see the progression of it. It's pr- really pretty amazing if you think about the hundreds that were present when the ascension took place to where we are now. When Peter gets up to preach on those steps of the temple, thousands come to faith in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. After that, we see the faithfulness of the church living out what they believe, not just, not just preaching and teaching, not just going through motions. I mean, they're living this thing out in their community. They are everyday Missionaries, and we see people being added to their number daily. By the time you get to chapter four, it says many believe, and the number of men grew to five thousand. And that's just sort of a sort of an ancient way of measurement, estimate measurement. So if it's five thousand men, then you might rightly triple that number, or even quadruple that number in terms of total followers, families, children, etc. By chapter five, verse fourteen, it says more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Chapter 6, verse 1, where we were last week, says the disciples were increasing in number. So this thing is just exploding. I mean, I just want you to imagine this is exploding. And the Bible describes it this way. If you're trying to picture the the crowds and where they might be assembled, what says they gathered in the temple courts and from house to house. If you ever get an opportunity, if you've never seen it, take a a few moments to, to Google and you can pick up some pictures of the temple and the southern steps. Much as they were during Jesus' day, the Temple Mount, not the temple, which is not there, of course, but the steps where Peter would have preached. You can see the area there is not that large. So you can just imagine thousands gathered there would have been an enormous crowd. Thousands gathered there today would be an enormous crowd. And then all those in the homes, I mean, this was just going everywhere in Jerusalem. You could not ignore what was happening here. You could not ignore what God was doing. But here's something that we all have learned, whether it's in church life or business life, when you start adding people, you start adding problems. People bring problems. Now I could spend hours up here today talking about why people bring problems. We each have our own things and we got our own issues. And we got our own hangups. We've got our own baggage. We've got our own perceptions and our own opinions and all those things. But when you start gathering people, you're going to bring problems. You know, we saw this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus would Draw these huge crowds, and they didn't want him to stop teaching, they didn't want to stop listening, and they're hungry and people problems. Well, now in the early church, what's happening is we've already seen, and what was also the Bible says is exactly God's pictured norm in Revelation 5, as I read, you're bringing people from disparate backgrounds together. And in the city of Jerusalem, even then, was somewhat multicultural, multinational, we might say, and so you've got these people coming together from both. Jewish backgrounds, and Greek backgrounds, Hellenist backgrounds. And these are people that before the gospel hit their lives, before they were transformed by Christ, they did not intersect. Now maybe slightly in the marketplace, but only as necessary, but culturally, socially, relationally, no. There was not intersection here. There was a huge divide. What brought them together? Christ. Because now all of a sudden we realize we got something far more important in common than we ever have not in common. We have something far more powerful that unites us than anything that could divide us since Christ, but there are issues here. And Look at chapter 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, again, go back to Acts chapter 2 and see some of the practical, real life ministry stuff that the early church was doing. If you're wondering about what is this daily distribution, we've already seen evidence that in the early church they were taking care of one another. And one of the groups they recognized needed care were the widows among them. And so they were sharing what they had. Remember that? Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira and what was the deal there? People were selling what they had. They were giving it to the church for the distribution of needs. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the rewards of generosity. They wanted to look like they were the best among the people, but they really were scamming everyone. They were hypocrites. They wanted the reward of being like someone like Barnabas, but they really lived people like, people like Judas, and they were judged for it. But the early church already had a precedence. We're going to take care of one another. Now that we're in Christ, we're not going to let each other suffer. So you have this daily distribution going, but there's a disparity happening. So apparently the Jewish widows were getting treated differently than the Greek widows were. Okay, so that's, that's a problem. All right? Well, let's break this down in some practical terms this morning. And, and let me just say this in advance. I don't like normally to qualify what I'm about to say, but I might drop a truth bomb or two on you today. So I just want to encourage you in advance. Don't get all up in your feelings, okay? I'm flying over from 30,000 feet. If it lands on you, that's God, okay? And I will try hard not to be a respecter of persons because some of what I'm going to say is going to hit us at all different sort of levels. But I think this passage of Scripture um, does require more of us than just simply to read it once or twice a year when you're ordaining deacons. There's something integral about a healthy church here and how a healthy church stays on mission. You probably are all familiar with the phrase or the term mission drift. Mission drift is when an organization, whether that's a secular organization or a religious one, begins with a certain purpose in mind, clear stated purpose, goals, aims, but somehow over time begins to deviate from that mission or purpose until all of a sudden they become something else altogether. Now in the business world, mission drift might cost you profits, It might cost you customers. It might affect your bottom line. In the church world, in the true church, mission drift costs you everything. In fact, drift far enough from mission and you stop being a church. You may still look like one. You may still call yourself one. You may still be legally recognized as one. People may still go there and say they're going to one, but it doesn't necessarily mean you are one. This weekend, I sort of binge-watched a series that probably a number of you are familiar with. And it's on one of the, one of the planet's most famous churches. Hillsong, a mega-church exposed, Discovery Plus has put out. And it's a troubling, troubling documentary. And at the very least, it's an expose of mission drift on a grand scale. When something that may have begun legitimately becomes into something that no longer looks like the church, no longer fits biblical definitions, no longer operates according to truth. That has impact that's potentially eternal. Cuz the worst thing a church could do would be to convey to people or even worse yet convince people that they're fine with God when they're not. To sell them on something that's ultimately self-satisfying, self-gratifying but really has nothing to do or little to do with the God of the Bible, and that's a tragedy. So, I want to look at some necessary lessons as we talk about staying on mission as a healthy church, being increasingly healthy, and how do you do that and stay on mission? Well, again, recognizing that people bring some problems, there's some necessary lessons, first of all, for church leaders. Now, I'll leave that word leaders there rather generic. I'm not talking about necessarily, I'm talking about primarily, but not necessarily those that have specific leadership titles. Because if you have influence, if you have a voice that other people hear and respond to, then you are a leader. If you've been here for a long time and people care about what you think or want your opinion on things, then you're a leader. If you sit on a committee, if you lead a life group, if you're a deacon, if you're an elder, you're clearly a leader in the church. Well, here's some necessary lessons for church leaders. First one is this, a healthy trellis is necessary for a healthy growing vine. Now, I don't to make the statement, I'm going to explain it. A healthy trellis is necessary for a healthy growing vine. Now, I don't have a green thumb, and I'm not real big into plants and stuff like that, not because I don't like them, and just not good at it, nor have the patience or the intelligence to do it well. But you recognize the premise that I'm talking about here, and I borrow the concept from a very healthy book called, remarkably enough, Trellis and the Vine. It's probably, at least in the last 20 years, the best book I've read on healthy churches. Trellis and the Vine. And then he uses a premise here. You know, a trellis is that which a... Healthy vine can grow through, find its support, find its stability, and it can help maintain the growth. Without that trellis, the vine itself would be limited in how much it could grow. Maybe it stays on the ground. Maybe it never reaches its potential. Maybe it's never as healthy as it could be. The tragedy is this, that sometimes the attention begins to be far more on the trellis than it is on the vine. Now, in our culture today, when I use these terms metaphorically, I mean this. Trellis are all those structures and systems that support the people work of the church. But those structures and systems are sometimes necessary because growth demands certain structures. More people demand certain systems, certain space needs, certain resource requirements. Wouldn't you agree with me? Think about this even in biblical terms. Moses, with the people of Israel, struggled with the organization of them, and he met with his father-in-law, Jethro, and Jethro gave him a system of dividing them up under leadership groups, and smaller and smaller tiers so they could be led well. Jesus himself, when he was working with those first believers, those first disciples, not just the original twelve, but seventy, and twelve, and three, and sometimes just one, Jesus did this, and the early church must do it as well. But here's the problem in church life. Over time, attention to the trellis begins to replace attention to the vine. In other words, we stop being focused on discipleship, Conversion, healthy spiritual life, healthy morality, biblical living, and we begin to put our focus so much on the stuff, whether it's committees or structures or programs or activities, and that takes up so many people and so many resources. You know, I was listening to Dan just a moment ago, and Dan was reminding us that from our budget, from our giving, 20% of what you put in the offering plate today, 20% will go to missions, and I'm pretty proud of that, honestly. Um, in 2015, we, we began the process to meet the goal we had set for 2020 that we had raised it a percentage a year until we got to 20%. But then I think about in the big scheme of things, how much of our resources are spent inwardly, they're on us. Facilities and stuff and nice, you know, all the niceties of church, the kind of stuff that the modern American church could scarcely do without. While you've got billions of people who don't even know who Jesus is. I was talking with someone the other day about a short-term mission project. And I was mentioning to them in my very limited experience, very short window of time that I was in India. And we're going to a marketplace in one of those towns where uh, we support ministry. And I had an interpreter with me. It was just pairs, just one of us and, and one of them, an interpreter. And I was speaking to a man who had a little fish market there which that was hard enough to do personal evangelism in an outdoor fish market because, man, that was just, it was killing me, I tell you. The smell was killing me, but I was going to suffer for Jesus right here. I just didn't want to throw up on the guy. But it was hard, and I'm not joking. I mean, I say that in all serious. like, man, these smells are killing me. And then the guy offers me some chai tea, and I thought, Lord knows where that came from. And and I don't know that I can drink that because I don't like chai tea, even if I'm sitting in an air-conditioned Starbucks, much less standing over a fish carcass. But I wanted to be gracious, and I drank it. But here's what really stood in my mind that day. As we talked for a while, and he was very gracious, he said this, he said, you know, I've never, through an interpreter, you know, I've never even met a Christian. You're the first one I've ever met. That's troubling. It was encouraging that we were there and our missionaries are there and they're engaging these people. It was also troubling. And then I think about, you know, going back to the American church where the majority of us have never even talked to somebody about Christ. Colliding with a world who's never even heard someone, heard of someone or met someone who is a Christian. Troubling. But you see, when you look at what happens in the modern church with all that attention grown given to the trellis and so little given to the vine, here's what the authors of the book, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, write as maybe some reasons why we drift this way. He says, perhaps it's because trellis work is easier, less personally threatening. Vine work is personal, requires much prayer. It requires us to depend on God and open our mouths and speak God's word in some way to another person. By nature and by sinful nature, I mean, we shy away from this. Which would you rather do? Go to church and be a a busy bee, sweep up some leaves, or share the gospel with your neighbor over the back fence? Which is easier, for the church to have a business meeting about the state of the carpet, or to have a difficult meeting face-to-face where you rebuke a friend about his sin? You see, trellis work also often looks more impressive than vine work. It's more visible. It's more structural. We can point at something tangible, A committee, event, a program, a budget, an infrastructure. And we can say that we achieve something. We can build our trellis so it reaches to the heavens in the hope of making a name for ourselves. But there may be still very little growth in the vine. And the vine work is the work of the church, the disciple-making work. So understand this. So let me go back to hit my point again. A healthy trellis is necessary. It's necessary to have structure. So in the early church, as they're growing and thousands of people are being added, now they've got a structural breakdown... If something's happening there that's causing conflict and difficulty, it's not unimportant. A church needs structures. It needs those things in place. They're just just not primary. But here are a couple of necessary lessons for church members. Okay, so this is all of you who are members of this church as you sit there and listen. What does the Bible say they did? Chapter 6, verse 1. It says this disparity was happening in the distribution of the food, and one group began to, what's the word? Complain. They began to complain about it. Now let me make a point, and stick with me here. Your concern about an issue in church, your concern can be legitimate, and your response to that concern still be sinful. Let me say it again. You can have a legitimate concern about something in the church, something that the leadership of the church should be aware of, something that something must be done about, something adjusted, something fixed. But your response to that concern, which is legitimate, can be illegitimate and still be sinful. Because we know, and the Bible does not contradict itself, that we are told again and again, multiple texts in the Old Testament, showing not only the command not to do so, but the cost of doing so, coupled with what we see in the New Testament, not to complain. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, complaining or arguing. James 5.9, do not grumble against one another. 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, 1 Peter 4.9, 1 Timothy 2.8, over and over we see this. This is not how God's people are supposed to work. So again, you can have a legitimate concern, but there are legitimate ways to deal with legitimate concerns. And how do you do those? You do those without spreading that among other people because attitudes are among the most contagious conditions An attitude that you bring, that you share in your life group, or that you share on the phone, or via text message, or in conversation in the hallways, those attitudes can become not only contagious, but pervasive. And so now you've got thousands of people, and the whole system is being shaken by some people who are complaining. Surely that's not God's intent. God's been blessing this, and the thing's been growing like crazy, and and people can't ignore it, and and people, even, even priests, I mean, even people who had opposed it, who had hated it, who were diametrically opposite to it. We're getting drawn into it. Here's the second point I want to make to church members. Not every problem or failure in the church is a result of sin. Not every problem or failure in the church is a result of sin. This is the great, not the great, let me backtrack. This is a great irony of church life. Perhaps what we intend to offer the most to those outside of us, to those outside of Christ, outsiders from the church, what we intend to offer them the most could probably be summarized with this word, grace. Grace. You can be forgiven no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. God is a far better Savior than you are a sinner, and you can receive grace until you become a Christian and become one of us And then the rules change. Because then we don't forgive easy and we don't forget ever. And we'll spiritualize things that are not spiritual. Do you know they moved my seat? Do you know they changed my life group room? Do you know they've changed our curriculum? Do you know they've changed the worship times? And then all of a sudden, the talk begins, the chatter begins, as if sins were committed, as if immorality has happened. Every time church leadership or the church as a whole does something you don't agree with, goes against your preferences, is not sinful. It doesn't mean someone's done something immoral. What do we need to do? We need to do the same thing we're telling people out there we will do if you come in here. We need to learn to show grace. We need to learn to show grace. We need to learn to look for the best. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. We need to be able to look at our leadership, our pastors and staff, our elders, our deacons, with this basic assumption, though these are flawed men, I know because I'm one of them, imperfect men, we trust them. And until we have clear reason to not trust them, we will. And we will assume that they work together. We'll assume that they pray through. We'll assume that they hold one another accountable. We'll assume that until we have clear-cut reason not to, that they're doing what God wants them to do. Not every problem is a result of sin. And let me throw this one in there, and this this might shake your tree a bit. Even if and when sin is the cause, because sometimes it is, we still have to learn to practice forgiveness and grace. That doesn't say the same as cover-up. When sins are acknowledged and confessed, if anything but grace and forgiveness flows, we are not doing the work of a church. You follow? We're just not. We're just not. We've got to be those sort of people. We've got to say, listen, we've got to be the most grace-filled people possible. I've been doing, I don't know, weddings, I guess, for 27 years. I mean, it's not a huge long time, but it feels long, and I'm not sure exactly how many I've done. And over the years, I've used different curriculum and different resources to do premarital counseling. And I've kind of narrowed down now to a few specific themes that I think are critical. And it's not because I've learned so much about couples getting married, it's I've learned more about couples who are married and how much they struggle and where they struggle and why they struggle. And so I begin to focus more and more and more on this reality. If your marriage is not full of grace, if you don't learn to be a good forgiver, if you don't learn to trust the heart and intentions of your spouse, man, are you going to struggle and how? grace giving and receiving grace so so critical so be careful that your responses aren't sinful if your concerns are legitimate don't let your responses be sinful let's talk about some things that healthy churches do for a moment look at the response so here's the issue verse 2 and the 12 summon the full number of the disciples that doesn't mean the 12 summon the 12 in the early church every christian is a disciple no exceptions Make sure you know that. Every Christian in the early church is a disciple, no exceptions. They were all followers of Christ. We have this ridiculous notion in modern church that discipleship is some second-tier Christianity, that you can accept Jesus as your Savior, you can be forgiven, you can go to heaven, and then we'll try to coax you, we'll try to pressure you, uh, we'll try to stir you into wanting to be his disciple. That's bogus. You cannot separate conversion from discipleship. Those who are truly His, will follow Him. Maybe not perfectly, because we're, we're still imperfect people, but no true follower of Christ, no true converted person is not a follower. So they call them all together. That's simply to say they called the church. And here's what they said. The twelve, functioning as the elders of that first church, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now let me just pause here just for a second. This is not a message on deaconing per se. But deacons, you're not exempt from this. I find it a bit ironic, and I hope you do too. The early church had thousands of people, at least 5,000 just men. Not to mention women and children. And when they began to have problems, they chose seven godly men to work on the solution. And look at the criteria. Good reputation. Is this person legit to insiders and outsiders? Full of wisdom, and full of the Holy Spirit. And look at the modern church. We have hundreds. We choose 30 or 40. We still can't solve our problems. Is it possible, and I'm speaking to any of you personally, if you get up in your feelings, that's on you, not me, is it, pers- is it possible that two things are true? One, as a church, we don't know what we're looking for when we're choosing deacons. We're choosing friends or buddies or hard workers or good old boys, but we're not looking for wisdom, the right thing in the right time in the right way because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I suspect we could do more with seven men full of wisdom and Holy Spirit than we could do with hundreds or thousands who are not. So part of that burden as you choose deacons is on you because we still do what the first century church did. We put it on you and say, choose men among you. Now to the deacons, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. If that's not you, that's what you should be seeking to be. We've already chosen you. You're in the spot. You don't fit. You got two possible recourses. Step out and say, that's not me. That's not me. I don't have a good reputation with outsiders. Y'all just don't know it because you don't know the people I'm around. Or two, I, you know, I don't know what to do or when to do it. I, I couldn't tell you how to make the Bible apply in my life. And full of the Holy Spirit guided by him? I'm sorry, that's not me. So either step out or step up because that's what we need. That's what the church needs. It needs those sort of men. Number five, verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now there's you a unicorn moment in the church. It wait, hold up. This pleased everybody. This pleased everybody. I mean, the person that came from that 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 super contemporary church in, in Birmingham, and then, then that person that wishes that their church looked more like that that small church they came from, and wherever you know, everybody. This pleased everybody. And they chose. Catch this. They chose Stephen. You know who he was. First Christian martyr. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip a tireless evangelist, and then the rest, Prochorus, Nicanor. We don't know much about them. We know from some suggestive history, some suggestions in history that several of them were martyred. These men, verse 8, they sat before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. They commissioned them. The laying on of hands was a conveyance of their authority for the task. From the elders, these men we have commissioned and we've given them our authority to act and they have a job to do. So let's break this down real quick. So listen fast. I'm going to go quick. A healthy church from top to bottom is going to be relentlessly committed to its mission. It's going to be relentlessly committed to its mission. That's why those disciples said, or those apostles said, or those first elders, as they were, said before the titles were official. That's why the 12 said this. It would not be right for us to stop our ministry that we're doing, preaching and prayer, to serve tables. It wasn't a caustic or sarcastic cynical remark to wake tables that's not what they're saying they're saying we've got to be relentlessly committed to this mission this mission is is foremost it's preeminent and it takes precedent over everything and it's so far above and beyond anything else we would do that we've got to be relentlessly committed to making disciples i mean again consider the context do you see what's happening here you see what's happening here? Look, all these people are getting saved and you want us to stop doing that and start doing this? That wouldn't be right. And I was thinking about this in my mind because I'm always going through this sermon in my head. I'm preaching it to myself. and preaching in my head. And then I thought, there's going to be some joker sitting out there that'll be just as cynical as me listening to this and saying, well, yeah. You know, if I was in a church that was adding thousands and thousands of people, I'd get it too. I would say, yeah, look, all people, I, I, won't, I don't have a complaint, but that's not us. Have you ever considered the circular reasoning of that? Have you ever considered that healthy churches are so focused on their mission that it's owned and shared by everybody? That that healthy churches are on the alert for unity and guarding against discord because they know how that impacts and impedes the work? That that healthy churches are not asking, what can you do for me? What have you got for me? They're asking, where can you use me? What does God want to do through me? And so maybe, just maybe, and it's not this clean and simple because this is a work of God's Spirit, I understand, which cannot be manipulated or manufactured by us. But maybe, just maybe, our part of the contribution is actually part of the problem, not the solution. They're going to be, helpfully, they're going to be committed relentlessly to the mission. Let me ask you a couple questions. What was the tool that God used to bring growth to the church? What tool did God use to bring those thousands and thousands to salvation? What was it? It's not a hard question. The bold proclamation of the word. The word boldly proclaimed is the tool that God was using to bring people to salvation. That's why That's why those early apostles recoiled so much at the attempts of government or religious efforts to stifle them, to silence them. They had to keep speaking. This is a tool. The Word boldly proclaimed. What's the tool that God used to protect the Word, protect the ministry, empower the ministry, and keep the church bold? What was that tool? Come on, it's not a hard question. Prayer. When they were getting arrested, when they were getting threatened, when they were getting imprisoned, when they were getting beaten, what did they do? They prayed. And when they finished praying, they came out what? Bolder more committed, more empowered. So when the early church leaders said this, it would not be right for us to stop the primary ministries of the word and prayer is because they recognized that's what God was using to glorify himself and bring people to salvation. So we got to put our focus there. And the question then would be this, would there even be a church without either? Would we even be reading something called the book of Acts if it wasn't for bold preaching and consistent, persistent praying? The answer is No. That's why I make this statement, anything then that threatens unity derails or at least detracts from mission. Anything that affects unity derails or at least detracts from. And and let me qualify that because that's why I use the words derail or detract. I've come to the position now after some little bit of experience doing what I do in regard to you and pastoring you and loving you and encouraging you and teaching you and things like that. None of us are big enough to stop the work of God. So no way in the world would I ever stay up here and say, hey, some of you need to get your act together because you're keeping this church from moving forward. You don't have that power. Now, you can absorb some of our resources and some of our time. You can keep us from being as effective as we'd like to be. You you can keep us pointed in a direction sometimes that turns us off course the direction we ought to be on, but you can't stop. It's God's church and it's going to prevail. I was also thinking of this, as I'm sharing some of these things with you, which may seem hard, or difficult to hear, the worst part of this, as I share it with you, is a portion of the people that need to hear it are not in this room. They're not in this room. They go to your life group and then they leave. They're disconnected from the fellowship. They're harboring offenses or problems or issues. They're still among the grumblers and the complainers. They don't know what we do. They don't know what we're about. It's not a part of it and haven't been. Or they'll stay on fringe connected to the church in a very superficial way. But I wish that they could hear it. I wish that the 1,700 people that claim to be members of this church could hear what it means to be a healthy biblical church. But we're working on that. We're trying to get there. Anything that threatens unity derails or at least detracts. Number two, a healthy church is going to effectively triage problems and priorities. Let me explain. Triage. I don't want to go too deep into the weeds because I see my time is going to run short on me and I won't be able to finish what I want to say. But I think most of us understand the concept of triage. If I present to the emergency room a number of symptoms, I show up there at 11 at night and, you know, I'm, I have a gushing wound from my face that I'm sure some of you have seen. I'll go ahead and tell you, yes, my dog scratched my face. It was playful, not aggressive. Just want to get that out there because everybody, everybody no one's asked, would just look at my face like, wow, what does this silly do? Because my dog was accidental. If I present to the emergency room these set of symptoms and I'm just, just gaping, gushing wound, and I also tell them, you know, I got this thing on my foot right here It irritates me when I walk a lot. What do you think they're going to treat first? What are they going to deal with first? They're going to deal with the biggest problem first. And so a church has to do that. We have to triage the problems. And when I say that to say this, things that aren't most important are not unimportant. Now, let me, let me explain what I'm saying here. This whole deal with the weighting the tables and everything, because it wasn't most important, it didn't mean that it was unimportant. You follow what I'm saying? The most important thing is we got to preach the word and we got to pray, but it doesn't mean these other things are unimportant. It's just that sometimes in church life, it seems like we only have two speeds on our bicycle. It absolutely matters or it doesn't matter at all. And we would be fools to dispense of all those things in the in-between. So this absolutely does matter. I mean, Paul would later address this to the early church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says that there be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You think those weren't lessons learned in the early church? Well, let's make sure that we're caring for one another, whoever we are. Do you think James didn't recognize those things when he wrote about favoritism in the early church? No, those lessons are learned. This thing, in, this thing matters. We, we get this. And sometimes we say, you know, we really just need to focus on just, you know, just good people. We just need to have godly people. And I would say this to you. Godly people are more important than processes, for sure. The vine is more important than the trellis. Developing godly followers of Jesus is more important than all the systems in the world that we have. But when there are structural problems, you have to have structural solutions. Structure is not the opposite of spiritual. Structure actually is spiritual if rightly applied. So in other words, they had to look at this problem. It was right that they did something with it. To just let it fester and grow is not biblical. It's not healthy. So a structure needed to come to work. An illustration from a church health article I read, which easily resonates with all of us. Ever been to a local mechanic that's overwhelmed with the amount of work that he has? You know, the cars are just piling up. He just can't get to them all. Um, You know, you, you go past the shop and it's like they're just all packed in there. And you know if you take your car there, he may promise it in two days, but it may be two weeks. That's just the way it happens. Now, it probably wasn't like that in the beginning. Maybe this guy was great at what he did. And he could turn your work out so fast with such high level of skill and dependability. And word began to spread. You begin to send your friends there. But now, all of a sudden, he's got more work than he can handle. And he's working more and more and more hours. And he's trying to cover more and more stuff. But he just can't do it. You're getting frustrated, and and he's getting burned out. And what's the solution here? It's not because the guy's not working hard. It's not because the guy is unethical. He's just got a bad structure in place. He's got to fix the structure. So early church has got to fix the structure here. And so that's what they did. They said, let's figure out a system. And the system they employed to fix structural issues, system issues, was deacons. That's what deacons do. They look at the structure's, that support the church. They look at the the trellis that holds the vine. They look at the systems that need to be in place, and they say, what can we do to make sure our structures and systems and supports are as healthy as they can be so that our people can flourish? How do we care for the people by making sure that they're taken care of, looked after, and the systems are in place? So you look at things like facilities. I was thinking about this the other day, and this is not an ad. This is not the the first soft launch into a, um, a campaign, a fundraiser campaign. But I will tell you right now, we're, we're getting real close to being overwhelmed in preschool space. That's a great problem to have. That on Sunday mornings, we've got so many preschoolers over there, we need new space. It won't be long until we'll be having conversations about what do we do as this room fills up to reasonable capacity. And we need to be looking at alternatives and things like that. These are good questions to have. We'll never, we'll never let the shoe decide how big the foot can grow, right? We'll, we'll be careful of those, those are structural issues. But as we talk about structure, a healthy church is always going to structure itself for missional unity and gospel growth first. Our structures have to be for missional unity and gospel growth. This is the quickest to fly over what church polity ought to look like. First you have elders. Now here they're implicit in Acts chapter 5. Later on in the New Testament they become explicit. It won't be very long until the book of Acts that we begin to see the appointment of elders in every church. Plural. Plural elders in every church. That's the biblical norm. That's the way it was at the beginning. It's the way it should be today, even though we're sort of outside the norm in that. Elders have the biblical authority of teaching and oversight. It's the simplest statement I could give you what elders do. They have biblical authority of teaching and oversight. The reason I put the word biblical authority is that's where all the authority from elders come from. We're not the governing board of a secular organization. We represent to our best understanding the teachings of scripture and how they come to bear on the church and then we share with the church this is what the word says and this is what you, we all of us ought to do as a result that's our authority, authority is not position authority is scriptural authority of teaching and oversight is a result that's why elders should prioritize preaching I got an ugly card the other day that I kept it because the outside of the card was pretty um yes. I might frame it. The inside of the card was not. And it was meant to be, I guess, a really serious dig at me. And it says, you know, you're a good preacher, but you're a terrible pastor. And then not you're like, oh, that's all right. I'm cool. I'm good. And, you know, not all of you will know me in a personal pastoral capacity. That's just true. There's just too many sometimes. Some of you will and some of you have. Um, and though I want to be both. I understand that I have to do more than just chaplain you. I have to do more than just, just visit you or pray for you. I have to preach to you. And that's primary. And i got to represent what the Word says. i got to prioritize preaching. But I also practice prayer. Praying. We're always trying to emphasize prayer. Not just the collective praying that we do, but private praying. And elders also function to gather and protect the flock. Protect the flock and say, no, that's not right teaching. No, that's not right practice. No, that's not right living. And that's our responsibility, elders, to protect the flock. Deacons. Deacons have a biblical responsibility of meeting tangible needs. Those are the processes I talked about earlier. They have a responsibility of meeting those tangible needs. What's not working that's impeding the health or growth of the church? Who's falling through the cracks? Who's not being cared for? Who's not being attended to? Who's not being treated fairly? What system is breaking down? So they care for members, they coordinate ministry, they cultivate unity. That's what deacons do. What about church members? You have responsibilities too. This is not just something you come and see. About the worst thing we could be, ever become as a church, in my estimation, would be a Sunday morning show where we entertain the masses we try to give the best product we could give to the customer base. That's about the worst thing we could be. Sometimes that's the easiest thing we could be. It's easier to have a polling formula, formal and informal, seeing what people like. It'd be easier to sing songs top forty Christian radio because they've already been polled to some degree and you already know them and like them and they make you feel something. It'd be easier to do that and pick biblically sound things. It'd be easier to say things that I know you're going to like to hear. Pick topics that are naturally going to appeal to you. It's frankly easier to be a motivational speaker, a self-help speaker, than it is to break down hard passages of the Bible. But that's not what we're about. And members, you have a responsibility in all that. And your primary responsibility is this, that collectively, when I say members, it's not just you and me, you versus me. It's you, me, all of us, because this, this category is the big circle that all the other circles fall in. You and I have the authority and the responsibility of displaying the gospel. Biblically speaking, that's what you were ultimately for. The glory of God made manifest in the church that the gospel is put on display. What do we believe? What do we do as a result of what we believe? How are we changed and how does that change show up in how we live, how we treat one another, how we work in the world As we display the gospel, you've got three responsibilities that are distinctively yours as church members. You also have to protect the gospel. You have a responsibility of protecting the gospel. I'm very responsible to God and will give account for what I say and what I teach. You are very responsible and will give an account to God for what you listen to and what you give ear to. You have that responsibility You have a responsibility to filter and consider and to pray through. Not just things that appeal to you. Our our lenses of filtering, we'll get to this a little later in Acts, can sometimes be a little askew. But you have a responsibility right here. You protect that. You also have a responsibility to proclaim it. Our whole philosophy of, of a growing healthy church is predicated on church members being everyday missionaries, which means where you live, where you go to school, where you work, you're out there representing Christ. Not just with bumper stickers and t-shirts, but with words, with conversations, with intentionality. And you have to be practicing this gospel because, man, it can break down fast. People look at us and say, man, I know some of those Calvary people. Let me tell you, this guy I work with, and he's a deacon at that church, or this person, they invited me to their life group, but, man, I I wouldn't go within... we we'll touch that light group with a 10-foot pole. I know those people too well. You know, we've got to practice. You protect it, you proclaim it, you practice it. Here's the conclusion of all this. At every other point of significant challenge in the early church, every other point, persecution, hardship, difficulty, Ananias and Sapphira, lying, internal, external, it doesn't matter. At every other point, gospel growth was the ultimate outcome. Challenge comes, the church rises. And once again, that proves to be the result here. And the Word of God continue to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you and I commit ourselves to the mission, commit ourselves to unity around that mission, relationships involved in that mission, roles and responsibilities to that mission, if we will commit to loving one another, caring for one another well, even as we seek to keep making disciples, We handle our problems rightly. The result will be growth. The result will be a people that God can bless and can work through. We can't guarantee how and when God will move His hand like He did in early church, but we can commit to faithfulness. We can commit to following a biblical model. We can commit to self-evaluation and honesty. We can commit being the healthiest most missional church we can possibly be together and that's a commitment I want you to make I'm going to ask if you'll pray with me this morning Father we are your people made so by your spirit Jesus our savior king ransomed for for himself us your people he's made us a kingdom of priests he's made us a A family that represents the name of our Father. We carry on the mission of our Father. We live as His representatives, or as your word says, ambassadors. Our Father making His appeal in this world. You making Your appeal in this world through us. Father God, I pray that we would just commit ourselves to it. We look honestly at ourselves. We're to handle things rightly. Lord, refocus us. Turn our attention towards the mission, the vine. Make new disciples. Continue to encourage the disciples among us to godly growth, perseverance, influence and witness in this world. Lord, may that be us. Lord, as leaders in the church, may we be quick to respond rightly to problems and difficulties. May we always be looking to realign ourselves with true mission so that we don't drift. God, give us wisdom and for the right systems and structures and supports to always be in place. Not as substitutes for the real thing, Father, but in order that this vine can be as healthy and be as vibrant and grow as much as you want it to grow. So, Lord, that's what we pray for. And now, Father, I pray for anybody in this room who's not part of that kingdom yet, not part of that vine. Because there's another image that speaks to them in your word. One day there's a, there's a coming judgment, a coming harvest. And that true vine inherits eternal life. a true vine that Jesus prayed for. In John 17, we're your people and we're preserved forever. We get to enjoy you forever, but the rest, chopped down. Put into the fire, your word says. Father, if there's anyone in this room who wants to be part of the vine, part of your family, not just part of this church, but wants to commit themselves to be part of your family forever, live under your authority, have your peace and your joy, to be forgiven, to be made new. And Father, speak to their hearts even now. And Lord, if you're drawing someone here who's a believer already, to be part of this fellowship, this particular iteration of the vine. And let them know, Father, you're building something here. You're putting it together as you see fit. So Lord, we will ask you to continue to do so. Lord, may we be forever vigilant about anything that would cause this vine not to grow. Prune us where necessary. May we be wise about the pruning ourselves. Structures and systems, Lord, may they all glorify you. But may we keep our eye on the mission to your glory, for the everlasting good of those who need you, for the blessing of us who will be obedient to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name.